Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest this week is a writer and campaigner whose recent book, A Case Against the Sexual Revolution, offers a new guide to sex in the 21st century. Seen by some as conservative feminist thinking, it was described by The Guardian as one of the most important feminist books of its time. Rather than herald the sexual revolution as a good thing for women everywhere, she argues that these freedoms have actually led to problems. She has piled into multiple feminist debates, voicing her gender-critical views, why she believes marriage is good for women and why it's time to turn back the clock on sex, pornography and prostitution. As a campaigner, my guest became a press officer for the campaign group We Can't Consent to This, which documents cases where women have been killed in rough sex. In 2022, she co-founded a think tank, The Other Half, a non-partisan organisation that champions the voices of women and families not heard in Westminster. Currently seen as carving out her own counter-feminist movement, she believes where Beyonce goes, we all follow. That's a credit to Spectator TV. If you like it, you should have put a ring on it. <laughs> My guest today is Louise Perry. Hello. So thanks for coming on this podcast today. We always begin by asking what I have been told in the past is a loaded question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Yeah, I think I would. Yeah. And not only because my parents will watch it, though they probably will. Yeah, I mean, also very boring. I I always feel like I'm really shortchanging people when I'm asked to talk about my upbringing because it's so extremely conventional. I grew up in London. I guess the only thing that's interesting is that I come from a, like an extremely Guardian reading sort of background. At one point, we got two Guardians a day. I really just be, just because it had to go round because my dad took one to work. And then I would take part of it to school and my mum would keep the rest. Which sections would you go for? G2. Do you remember the days? This was Alan Ross Bridger Berliner kind of era of The Guardian. Whereas now my parents only get The Guardian at the weekend, so make of that what you will. So that's kind of the only thing that's interesting, I suppose, in the sense that I've now become... I I don't know, I'm a bit reluctant to call myself a conservative, but a lot of other people do. And you said from the age of 11 you were listening to Radio 4. So I don't remember saying that, but it is true. Yeah, go on. <laughs> Maybe someone just found it out. I've read it online. Um, so if we're thinking about two Guardians a day, Radio yeah, 4. Moral maze, yeah. Yeah, were you very aware of current affairs and politics early on, or, or what was it? Oh, yeah, hugely. I've always been a news junkie. Yeah. Always. And did you end up having, I suppose, lots of discussions with your parents around the dinner table about things like this? Did they encourage it? Ooh. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I have since become, I guess, a shade more conservative than my parents. But yeah. not that, not hugely so. We don't disagree on anything really substantial. But yeah, it was a very, like, discoursey breakfast table. <laughs> um, are you an only child? No, I have no. a younger brother. Okay, fine. So it all went debates. And then I was going to ask you, I mean, you went on to study at university anthropology and women's studies. And of mm-hmm. course, we're here today because of the book you have. So at what point, I suppose, were you thinking about gender in terms of growing up when you decided to obviously go and study women's studies? And- so I sort of got, so I don't write about this in the book deliberately, although I have written about it elsewhere. The trans issue was quite formative for me in the sense that I was at SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies at the time, which is an extremely left-wing university. I actually wrote a piece about it for The Spectator years and years ago, if anyone wants to dig that out. And I kind of privately came to the conclusion that the trans activism, as it was, I mean, this was in the days when really the only person who was talking about this was Julie Bindle. Like, it was completely impossible to say anything critical of trans activism in public and I decided privately that the whole thing was insane 
And that for me was like quite an important moment in terms of being willing to believe things that no one around me believed, I guess, even if only privately. Yeah. And were you having conversations with people about the time on just... Not really. No, not really at all. So, I mean, I now kind of make no pretense of thinking anything else, but yeah, I think that was... I mean, for me, I think the reason that that was important was because... It was that moment of like, hang on, if, if, if progressives are wrong about this thing, what else might they be wrong about? And even though it took quite a few years for me to then conclude, you know, that the sexual revolution was actually somewhat terrible, for instance, I think that that was the first domino. And during this period, are you, I suppose, like, thinking of the t-shirt, this is what a feminist looks like, <laughs> but are you describing yourself as a feminist? Or? Yeah. yeah, so I, I initially was drawn to radical feminism because that was... That was the group of women who were critical of the excesses of trans activism, like Julie, in fact, who yeah. I first met at this stage in my life. And so radical feminism was kind of the obvious thing to go and read about. It was the obvious counter to the mainstream. And I'm still good friends of radical feminists and, and sort of we, we've reached many of the same conclusions on all sorts of issues like porn, prostitution, whatever, but I don't, I don't subscribe to the belief system anymore. And after university, you went to work in a rape crisis centre. What led you to do that? Well, I was volunteering there at the time when I was studying and then a job came up. So it was slightly coincidental in that sense because it was just like a natural thing to go and do once I finished studying. And also because I felt strongly about it and it's, you know, it's good, important work. I almost stayed in the charity sector. That was my alternative life course that I would have just worked in charities for, for years I ended up being a journalist slightly accidentally. And why did you leave the charity sector then, if it was potentially the long-term route? I just didn't like the work culture there. I mean, I'm not, I guess, maybe not coincidentally, given all the sort of controversial stuff I write about, I don't really like, I'm not a very good joiner in her, (laughs) if that makes sense. (laughs) Like, I find it really grating to have to sort of tow ideological lines. And you do have to do that in a lot of sectors and definitely the charity sector. So like, not the, say your views or... Yeah, yeah, be very conformist in all sorts of different ways. Like one of the reasons I didn't want to stay at the organisation I was at is that there was a move to... It would have been women only for years and years and there was a move to allow men to use the service as well, which I just thought was a really stupid idea because of the risk to abuses of the service and stuff like that. And I, yeah, I just sort of grew tired of having to play office politics and so on and you mentioned obviously the move to journalism but were you always writing growing up or or getting into debates with people or was it more I suppose introspective I was extremely insufferable but (laughs) that was my polite way of putting it (laughs) and I yeah I was like a school debater and all this kind of stuff but I I did always sort of privately hope that one day I might make a living as a writer or might be a writer but I would never say so to anyone it was like the most if I felt like it was the most embarrassing thing to admit because it seemed such an unrealistic thing to want to do so privately yeah but I would never have dreamed that I'd now be making a living doing this now for our listeners only a small portion of course who don't know about your writing (laughs) um, I wanted just to begin could you I suppose you talked about radical feminism where do you align as a feminist now how would you explain it to someone oh I don't know what the name is I mean the to some people would say I'm a conservative feminist post-liberal feminist is another term Kathleen Stock who wrote the forward for my book she she talks about materialist feminism, which I quite like. What um, does that mean? Well, 
it's a bit too academic, isn't it? That's the problem with that term. But basically starting from the recognition that men and women are really profoundly different in important ways and that any kind of feminist politics has to negotiate those differences rather than trying to erase them, I'd say would be the, the crucial distinction between what I'm now trying to do and other forms of feminism. Not all, but, you know, the mainstream view. Mary Harrington, who's a friend of mine, she calls it reactionary feminism, which is, like, kind of a joke. But also kind of not a joke. It's actually quite good. <laughs> kind of sticks. But, I don't know, I think it's not up to me to describe exactly what it is because I don't think I get a choice in the matter. But, yeah, I mean, I end up... I start with feminist priors, basically, and I end up at some conservative conclusions, like I am pro-marriage, for instance, which is a really unusual position. Um, we've touched on your book very lightly the case against the sexual revolution could you I suppose could you just start by telling me what is sex positivity and what is the case against it the kind of generous description of it is that it's about challenging old-fashioned ideas around sex which are sort of needlessly distressing to people you know saying that actually there isn't any reason to be ashamed of perfectly benign things like, I don't know, masturbation or same-sex relationships or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. And particularly about women sort of reclaiming their own sexuality and not being, you know... Like, there is a completely benign and persuasive version of sex-positive feminism that I don't have a problem with. The problem, I think, is that in practice what sex-positive feminism ends up doing is making excuses for a kind of sexual culture which actually favours male preferences, not female, and encouraging women to imitate male sexuality in a way that is actually really harmful to women. And do you think that goes back so that the problem of the sexual revolution is that it paved the way for this rather than more in women's terms? Or? Well, I think what the sexual revolution did is... Well, I mean, sort of two things, right? So there's the material dimension to the sexual revolution, which is the pill, which is the crucial innovation to my mind, it's this massive technology shock which suddenly allows women to control their reproduction in a way they have never have done before. It's why we call it the pill, capital P, you know, like, it's that big a deal. So there's that. There's also the ideological stuff that comes with it because this is all happening at the same time as the... The rejection of Christianity really is, I think, what we should be... That's what actually happens in the 60s, right? There are so many other ways in which we talk about it, but I think it should almost be understood, you know, some historians now are starting to think of it as being almost like a second reformation you know that level of ideological break with the past where everything associated with tradition which means any association with christianity has to be questioned thrown out the window etc including when it comes to sexual ethics so we end up in a situation where any kind of limitations on freedom are up for contestation and the only framework or or sort of ethical system left standing is the consent one you say as long as everyone's consenting and is able to consent there's no problem and all other norms whatever have to go out the window and I think what you know having seen that played out now for more than half a century what's ended up happening is a drift back towards a system of sexual ethics which favours men a minority of men. I don't think that this is like all men are having a marvellous time post-sexual revolution. They're clearly not. Like, it's not It's not nice to be, like, stuck in your mum's basement watching porn or whatever, like, miserable outcome many men are experiencing. It's a minority of men who are... I describe them in the book as the Hugh Heffernans of the world, the guys who are really attractive, 
love being promiscuous, love having consequence-free sex, obviously love the pill, obviously love the decriminalisation of abortion. Like The whole sort of supposedly sex-positive culture hugely serves their interests. And they're able to basically just consume women in the way that you would consume any sort of, any commodity. And I would say that that triumph of the Hugh Hefner's has been falsely represented as a feminist victory when it is nothing of the sort. So when I suppose you're looking at the sexual revolution and we're talking a bit about a sort of rejection of Christian values, say, but mm-hmm. also the pill, do you see some positive developments in that? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's some of the things that have just sprung from that later down the line that are problematic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have complex feelings towards Christian sexual ethics, right? And looking at the really long sweep of history here, right, I think uh, there's this popular narrative, which I really want to challenge, which is basically that, putting it really crudely, up until five minutes ago, all of our ancestors were just really sort of stupid and ignorant and, and malign. And people just suddenly woke up in the 1960s and decided we've been doing it all wrong. And, and now, you know, now we're on the like long march towards progressive triumph. I think that's nonsense. I think that most of what's changed women's lives, everyone's lives, has been to do with technology, has been to do with material change, the fact that our economy is wildly different than it used to be. You know, women can participate in public life in ways that we couldn't previously, partly because of things like washing machines and tampons. And Do you know what I mean? Like, the the story has so much more to do with the practicalities of day-to-day life than it has to do with ideology, although there is the ideological current as well. And if you look at like the whole long sweep of sexual ethics and look at, you know, don't just think about the 1950s versus that. I get so annoyed when people talking about back to the 1950s or whatever, like as if the world didn't exist before the 1950s, which is actually a very peculiar decade. You know, when Christian sexual ethics arrive in the Roman world, it's incredibly radical, right? The idea that men should not have unquestioned access to prostitutes, for instance, in a slave society where buying sex is incredibly cheap. The idea that high-status Roman men shouldn't be sexually abusing their slaves and their social inferiors, you know. This is the kind of thing that Christian sexual ethics arose to challenge and should be understood as a first sexual revolution in that sense and was very much in many ways in women's interest. And the reason that early, many early Christians were women and the reason that Nietzsche described Christianity as a religion of women and slaves is because it did serve women's interests in all sorts of important ways in challenging that kind of... So I, I write in the book about the fact that male and female sexuality should kind of be understood as two bell curves in terms of interest in having casual sex, buying sex, whatever, all the kind of the trait that psychologists call sociosexuality. Men are higher towards the higher end of the sociosexuality scale than women are with, with plenty of overlap. What the first sexual revolution of the first century should be understood as doing is basically obliging men to match the female bell curve if that makes sense. Like, you have to be monogamous. You can't have extramarital sex. You can't, you know, you can't buy sex. All of this stuff is all to do with encouraging men to behave more like women. Whereas our sexual revolution has been doing the opposite, is encouraging women to behave more like men. And I think for all of the downsides of the Christian system, which include, you know, the fact that women end up being shamed publicly for not being chaste, the fact that Christians have quite weird ideas about the unborn child, like most cultures are much more relaxed about abortion than Christians are, right? All of that stuff has all sorts of negative repercussions for women. And I think that we definitely reap benefits from having thrown that system out. At the same time, I almost think that what's happening now is we're almost reverting to a more Roman system, if that makes sense, right? Where actually the high-status men basically 
can do what they want. You know, they've got Tinder, they've got the whole world of the sex industry freely available to them and so on. I think that the argument I'm trying to make in the book is that there have been trade-offs and some of those trade-offs are really, really painful. Do you find it's quite an unfashionable argument to make amongst some of your friends or how does it go down? Have you been accused, and I do think it's like, you know, Serena Joy type figure, <laughs> <laughs> like trying to push me back to the fifth. Do you get much of that? No one's explicitly accused me of being Serena Joy, but I like, I like the reference. <laughs> Not as much as you'd think. Yeah, but I mean, a bit, yeah. When I was doing We Can't Consent to this stuff and like talking about things like why choking is not a good like sexual fashion, I got called vanilla and prude and la 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 on Twitter, but that's just Twitter. In general, no, it's been like 95% positive. So much more than I thought. I thought I might get raked over the coals a bit for this book, but no. And have you had people get in touch and having read the book, say it chimes actually perhaps a lot? All the time, yeah, several times a day. Yeah, it's amazing. Lots of people say something like, I've thought this privately all this time and I didn't really feel like I could say it publicly, which is nice. You had a piece in the mail, and obviously I'm a journalist, no one gets to pick the headlines. Um, <laughs> but it had the headline, get married and do your best to stay married. Yeah. I suppose not to dwell too much on reaction things, but how does that meet, I think, what people say to that? Because obviously it's become quite fashionable in a way to almost think marriage is bit too traditional to in the past it limits women mm-hmm. what's the reaction be like to that I mean generally the reaction is that feminists really like the book right up until the last chapter on marriage and conservatives really like the marriage chapter and then have more misgivings about the other bits of it let's just tear the book between the two groups <laughs> and, and then, then everyone's, like, happy. everyone's happy um <laughs> I mean, the argument that I'm making for marriage is not coming from religious principles. It's not coming from just, this is tradition, therefore it's good sort of principles. I try and make it a very kind of data-driven argument, which is that there are all sorts of ways in which married people fare better, you know, financially, socially, health-wise, whatever, particularly children do so much better in households where both parents are there. We know that married people are less likely to break up than non-married people, etc., etc. Comparing cultures where polygamous cultures, for instance, versus monogamous cultures, which are the only two options, by the way. There's no, like, fantasy land where women have loads of husbands and they're, and they're loving it, right? The options you have to choose from are basically those two. And seeing that the monogamous cultures do better on all sorts of metrics, including things like lower domestic violence rates, lower child abuse rates, you know, there's a really, really strong argument to be made just from the numbers that people fare better when marriage is the norm and abandoning it as a norm has, I mean, I completely concede that there are some marriages that really do need to end and that domestic violence, you know, it is clearly a terrible thing when women are trapped in in marriages with violent husbands and they can't get out legally it's also worth bearing in mind that women who are unmarried are actually much more at risk of domestic violence than women who are married now it's like the relationship is really not that close and the downside of having the loss of the institution has overwhelmingly been borne by mothers and children and I think the thing that I'm accused of sometimes by some feminists including feminist friends is being defeatist and kind of not wanting to just completely overhaul masculinity and femininity as such and seeking out the kind of pragmatic compromise positions like for instance yes marriage has all these all these problems all these trade-offs but actually we've not yet found anything better we've tried like experimental 
communitarian stuff of communes all this kind of whatever we've tried completely doing away with marriage and and basically ending up with huge numbers of single mothers who are dependent on the state to some degree none of these have worked you know my, my view is and if it's a defeatist view then so be it that what we actually have to choose from as a culture are systems that have actually existed and have actually succeeded in real life not imagined alternatives that have never actually been tried we can all design like society on, on the back of an envelope and think that this would be amazing it's like a classic sort of undergrad ppe is to think to do right like come up with come up with like the perfect social system and think you can impose it on people i don't think you can i think actually what you've really got to choose from is is a very small and very flawed set of options now you've said you never voted tory and yeah. you're speaking about the two guardian a day household yes. um <laughs> Do you feel that the left is welcoming to some of the views? Because obviously, if you take away like the bullet points from what you're just saying, mm-hmm. I think it would look much more at home on a kind of conservative thinking manifesto than mm. what you'd expect at a left-wing rally. Yeah, in general, I've had more positive attention from the right than from the left. Although, I'm definitely not chummy with the like small-state conservatives by any means and the free market end of the... The really very libertarian wing of the Conservative Party is absolutely This trust is not your person. Well, <laughs> we'll see. She's been making promises on uh, on family taxation, which I hope she lives up to. But yeah, I guess where I'm at politically nowadays is probably like culturally right, economically left, that kind of quadrant, which is a very popular quadrant among voters. Yeah, but, I think that's almost where Boris Johnson was in 2019. I suppose but. so, yeah. Although he really needs to read my book. Yeah, you should send him a copy. Maybe I should. He's got time on his hands now. Um, <laughs> just, I'm trying to talk about your new ventures, so think, Dan, but just before mm-hmm. we do, I wondered, have you had any, I suppose, figures or movements embrace some of the arguments you're making in a way that's made you feel uncomfortable? Just in the sense that we're obviously talking about how, obviously, there's always more nuance to things. Like, you're not saying, or as far as I understand, you know, everything that came with the sexual revolution and some of those freedoms mm. was a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But, of course, when you're talking about some things such as being pro-marriage uh you know units together obviously you can attract people who want to use that argument to advance their agenda has there been anything like that those groups tend to actually get a bit annoyed with me because they think I've not gone far enough right it is true that I have had more generally a more positive reception on the right than on the left with the exception of things like very nice review in the observer and so on but I'll take it you know whoever's I mean I, I think that there is just as much of a misogynist streak on the right as on the left. I think it's completely even, to be honest. I think it's Andrew Dworkin who said that the right considers women to be private property, the left considers them to be public property. You know, I really can't put a piece of paper between between right and left in terms of like the record on women. And I do actually think, maybe we'll talk about this in relation to the other half, that feminism is leaving the left it's always historically been associated with the left. And like second wave feminism comes out of left-wing movements of the 60s, although always in tension, always, always conflict on various fronts. I think increasingly that's not the case. And I think actually it's not that feminism is joining the right per se. I think it's more that it's slightly orthogonal to the left-right distinction. We saw that, for instance, with all the conflict over the Gender Recognition Act in this country, which was the reforms were initially proposed by a Conservative government and then they ended up being rescinded by a Conservative government as well. You know, you had proponents and opponents across the House. There wasn't really a correlation with party affiliation. Ditto with things like newspapers. You know, you had the Morning Star being 
really turfy and then you had plenty of like libertarian conservatives who were really pro these reforms so and what came out of that the like grassroots feminist response to that which came out of groups like Mumsnet which was very much like I think it's absolutely no coincidence that mothers are particularly hostile to the kind of radical end of trans activism which says that there are no distinctions between men and women that all this biological sex is a construct whatever like if you've pushed a person out of your vagina you just you're just not like at home to that kind of argument I'm really interested to see where that goes, that grassroots movement, because I don't think it's going to be, like, singing from the same M sheet as progressives on everything. Now, you mentioned your think tank. Yes. Um, so it's the other half. You founded it recently. Very recently, co-founded. Yeah. <laughs> and we're speaking in Westminster, but the point of the think tank is to get voices outside of Westminster. C- can you tell us more? This shouldn't be news to, to most people who follow politics, but there's a gap on all sorts of things including on feminist issues, between what voters tend to say, what voters tend to tell pollsters, and what tends to be considered sort of consensus within Westminster. One example, I mean, one example would be Gender Recognition Act, which was the reforms were pushed by all sorts of elite voices and, you know, academia, media, whatever, was was full of resounding support for this. Like, even the no debate thing, hashtag no debate, you know, the, the idea that this was, like, not even up for discussion, whereas actually we know that that was absolutely not the position among like normie mums it's also true on things like family policy you know the standard view among feminists in Westminster is that the solution to the problem of negotiating work and motherhood is more daycare universal daycare hours encouraging women to get back into the office as quickly as possible basically severing the physical link between mothers and children as quickly as possible so that women can get back to work we know that most women don't want that and actually the, the proportion of mothers who who consider their career to be more... I mean, most women don't have careers, first of all, like most women have jobs. Consider their career or their job to be more important than their, than their family is a, quite a small minority. It is, however, by definition, a minority who tend to predominate in areas of public life where being a mother is a massive disadvantage. And mothers will tend to kind of fall by the wayside as time goes by and it becomes impossible for them to negotiate both roles simultaneously. What most women want, what most mothers and fathers tell pollsters they want, is to be able to have more choice to spend more time at home and just maybe work part-time, work flexibly, take periods out when their children are little. You know, not necessarily absent the workplace. You know, I'm not. I'm, I'm really not saying we go back to a period where women were, were restricted from entering public life. Apart from anything else, I'd be a terrible hypocrite to say that. But this idea that being like a man in every possible way, right, imitating the masculine role, whether that be in in terms of sexuality or in terms of professional life is the obvious way of improving women's lives I just don't accept that premise I think actually there's a lot to be said for actually saying that you know the feminine the domestic the other half of life actually has as much virtue and is it should be considered as valuable as the masculine sphere and that the job of feminism is not just about kind of breaking down the barriers to give women access to that sphere it's about protecting the welfare of women and their children more generally do you remember labor's pink bus do you remember this harriet harman had one (laughs) back when ed miliband was leader and harriet harman went on the road in a pink bus to talk about women's issues (laughs) it just made me think when you're talking and everyone went absolutely mental and was like 
this is a disgusting version of like you know <laughs> patronizing to women what they want but no I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the pink verse I completely forgot about the pink verse yeah I do try really hard not to sort of have pink too much my only request about the book cover was that it not be pink and my only request about branding for the other half was that it not be pink so focus on women's issues good but just not pink well just because people make assumptions I personally love the color pink and will happily wear the color pink but um, <laughs> final question is when we ask everyone on this podcast which mm-hmm. is just what is the worst advice you've ever been given whether you took it or just ignored it straight away so I got married unusually young I mean unusually young in not historically how young are we talking? I got engaged when I was 24 and married when I was 25. Oh, yes, yeah. So in like the 1980s, that was completely, that was average. But now the average age of marriage has gone up a lot. And I had a friend at the time when I got engaged to my now husband who said that I was making a terrible error and I, my 20s were for like shagging as many people as possible. And I did think at the time like, oh no, what if she's right? But I obviously didn't obey her advice. So anyway, that was my worst piece of advice. And you ignored it. Today. And I ignored it. That must be what everyone says. I got this bad advice and I ignored it. No one says Some people, I think most people have ignored it. I think occasionally someone's taken it. Yeah. And they're like, oh no. Is your friend now married? No. No. She was a bit older than me as well, which was why I sort of took her more seriously. No, she's now, she's still single. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, (laughs) Thank you for joining us today.